0: Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events, held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conferences YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Welcome to another episode of
1: uh... Go to Unscripted. We are here in uh, Copenhagen at the GoTo conference. My name is Linda. I'm sitting here together with uh, Derek. I just had a very interesting uh, experience. I went to a talk with uh, Derek and uh, I would really like to know more about what um, some details about what you were talking about. So um, first of all, you talked about uh, connectivity 3.0. Mm-hmm. So what is the first two versions of it?
2: Uh, I think the first two versions were kind of the early versions of the Internet, right? The IP protocols, and I think version two was everything was HTTP. All right. Right, and so what we inherited from that were some of the things that I feel got us to where we are, which mm-hmm. I think is a great thing, um, but also potentially, if we don't pay attention, can hold us back going forward, things like... Everything's a one to one conversation. Everything's asking a question and getting an answer back. And everything is location dependent. I think, you know, when we talked about the fundamental um, pillars of of how we want to reverse course on those, those are the ones that I see potentially, you know, holding us back as we try to move into a world which, you know, none of us know what it's really going to look like. Um, All I can tell you is from my 30-plus years in the industry, I I can tell it's going faster than we've ever seen before, and it has a level of uncertainty that um, we've never seen before, Um, meaning that in the next decade, where we end up, I think, will um, astound everyone, to be honest with you. Mm.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: (laughs) And I know that, Linda, you're in, in, in data sciences, and you know, we, we talked a little bit in, in the talk about this notion of collecting and analyzing and, and and drawing, you know, insights from more and more data to get better and better at answering the questions, right, that a lot of these systems are, are doing as they interact. And so I'm interested in, in your view on how fast do you think that world is is progressing? And again, it can sometimes feel like a frog in a boiling pot of water, right? As you're in it day to day, it feels slow. But then um, as you take just a little bit of a step back and look at like where we were just a year ago or two years ago, at least from my perspective, it's pretty mind boggling.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if you're talking about algorithms, then of course that's happening something every single day and we get more and more data. And uh, so, so the possibilities get uh, larger and larger. And of course, as with big possibilities with big data comes also big responsibilities so it's it's also what i've noticed this happening the last couple of years is actually people getting more and more aware of data privacy and that is that is also something that you touched on a little bit in your talk about security because that was something that i i was a bit interested in how how that actually happens in because you, you said that it's it sort of takes a back seat the security because um you put um, the security somewhere else in the system, not so much in the protocol, but rather somewhere else?
2: Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to infer that I took a back seat. Um, I actually tried to um, say almost the opposite, meaning it's secure by default. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do any unnatural acts, right, to, to secure uh, the, the system. Um, now, what you're talking about is, is you know, who, who owns the data and where's the data allowed to move, right? GDPR mm. within Europe, there's some provisions in California I think are going to continue down that path um, for sure. But no, I, what I meant was that things are, are secure by default, um, meaning that you know it just works that way. Now, where you have to potentially lean in is around zero trust, zero trust constructs. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that comes into play as the desire for larger amounts of data and diverse data to train these systems um, is gonna start needing to become more dominant from multiple providers, not single providers. Even the, um, the, the behemoths of, of the technology world, like the Googles and, and Apples that have such a tremendous amount of data, um, I believe that for them to continue to become more intelligent on some of these systems, they're gonna start needing to partner with folks and And uh, during the talk we we even talked a little bit. I made fun of myself about Netflix probably knows more about my sleep schedule than than anyone um and right now, all of these companies that we interact with these technology companies right they they um you know they use that data and and I don't think it's for nefarious purposes at least by default um but there's an assumption there that they have the data and they can use that data to make a better service, right, to kind of do that flywheel effect with customers. And I think that's going to come to an abrupt end. Mm. Um, and so what I try to think about, and, and you might have better ideas than I do on, on this, is how does my mother, who's you know getting into her late 70s, understand and rationalize that the data she's generating as she interfaces with Netflix or whatever streaming platform or any technology, is hers, and how can she be solicited to share that in a way that's meaningful to her? So for example, Netflix might say 50% off if we can see generic data about where you are, kind of the genres that you like, things like that. Um, It's not so much the younger generation, you know, um, I think who will understand that, but um, everyone needs to kind of understand, hey, every time I interact with a system, I'm generating data, and and I believe regulatory um, within the next probably less than a decade, it will be mine, it will be yours, and then it's your prerogative of whether or not you want to share it um, Mm -hmm. to get benefits or incentives or or whatever like that.
1: Yeah. I think also we're moving in that direction, and we've seen it with the GDPR and also systems where you actually have the data stored on, for example, on your m- mobile phone instead of it going to a server and being stored there are becoming more and more popular by users. So it, yeah. I think it is moving in that direction.
2: It is, and I, and I, I believe GDPR is a little bit of a blunt instrument, um, but I don't think we're going to go backwards.
1: No. right? We're going to mm-hmm.
2: keep going forward. So, Yeah. How do you feel about, I guess, the field of... Today, I, I would say it's termed more narrow AI, but like this this race to however you define AGI, right? Which from my perspective is more of a, an average type class of, of worker, you know, an intelligence could actually take on that, that type of role. Um, Which camp do you sit in? Do you feel that it's within the next couple of decades, or you still think it's 50 to 100 years out or... So
1: what, are you talking about uh, this concept of a sort of citizen data scientist or...
2: Well, yeah, artificial general intelligence, right? Where there is, uh-huh. a, there is a, a intelligence that can be trained kind of similar to our brains and can mold itself to different types of inputs.
1: Um. Oh, I think it's still far away, to be honest, yeah. yeah usually i mean we we can't really we can still not create anything that's smarter than us so i mean if it it's always depends on the data that you put in you get exactly the if you put good data in you get good results out if you put really bad uh, data model in if you don't cover your whole uh, um yeah uh, yeah
2: yeah it's interesting i've i have i have vacillated back and forth and I've always had a a thought about I just want to hold on long enough to be able to see it you know and i'm yeah. I'm getting up there um but over the last ten years, especially watching DeepMind, I think we're going to see something that resembles it within two decades. I really do. Could be wrong. Mm. Yeah, I'm wrong about a lot of things. But yeah, my sense know. is is that, you know, just even watching the notion of, um, you know, AlphaGo and and learning the the, the program of Go and, um, what I think people might not realize is that. One, you can't brute force the game, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have some level of strategy and intelligence to, yeah. to play. Um, and that the players, you know, have built up careers. So it's very hard to be, you know, a, a good human player. But that's not the interesting part. The interesting part to me is, is that, you know, general accepted rumors were that it was about a room full of specialized hardware to beat Lisa Dahl. And less than two years later, it was down to a small cabinet size. Mm. And all of a sudden, it wasn't only beating Lisa Dahl. It was beating, you know, everybody and all the chess players and stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had another massive order of magnitude and reduction of the the hardware cost. All of a sudden, beat every chess game played, every Go game ever played. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think it, it played another, you know, video game, which apparently is very hard. Um, but what happened was, is that my understanding is, is that the hardware to run that was all of a sudden fitting in the palm of a hand. So people don't see that part of it; they see that oh, it's getting better at stuff. But when you look at something like that, um, that bothers But, but still, my mind. I
1: mean, if even if it is getting smaller, the technology. I mean, I still think when we're training um, artificial or neural network or any mm-hmm. any model. Then, then we always have we sort of have the, the frames, right? And and yes, uh, the more data we have, we can train it within the frames. But getting as a neural network or artificial intelligence to go outside of the frame yeah. and do something different to be innovative, I think that is not not something that we can achieve very easily. And I still think that there's a way to go there, because if you're talking about playing a game, right? You, you, can, you can show it a lot of different strategies, and then it will learn to ad- adapt within the frames that you give it, but going out out of the frames and mm-hmm. doing something that we, we, we can't understand is, or that we haven't uh, trained it to do, is I don't think we're there yet.
2: Well, I, I would agree we're not there yet, but we're further than people think. So mm. the last um, alpha system out of DeepMind was Tabla rasa, meaning it had no predefined rules. Mm. It's kind of like the laws of physics, but they baked in the laws of whatever. And they also came out with a model just a little while ago that um, the same model can play chess, play go, also drive a physical robot to do Mm -hmm. menial tasks. And it was never trained to kind of do any of those things. Um, And I also think, you know, you being in the space, you probably have, you see it closer than I do, but I do believe there's going to be, a couple core algorithmic breakthroughs, and then the multimodal algorithmic mm. breakthroughs that I think it's going to be like click, 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 and all of a sudden we're like, uh oh, <laughs> it you know it, it's here. Um, we'll see. It could be that you know I'm I'm totally wrong, but my sense is is that um, as long as I don't get hit by a bus, I, I will be able to see it. You know, in my lifetime, okay. which is
1: hmm.
2: will be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe. I'm- the other
2: one that's interesting, and and again, you probably have more insight than I do, is. We're also starting to see a lot of folks switch their energy towards sparse um, networks, all right? The guy that created um, um, the Palm Pilot, mm-hmm. um, he uh, wrote a book in the mid-90s, I think, called On Intelligence, Jeff Hawkins, and it was really awesome. Um, and now he's been pushing on sparse networks, less data, because people look at the human brain and they're like, well, maybe it does have all this data, but it seems like toddlers use a lot of Less data to mm. form, you know, a mental model and and what looks like a level of sophistication around something. But that, that is
1: something that you're actually using to train neural networks is is to remove some of the data, and you actually often get better results, which yeah. is quite interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah, because it doesn't fall into the local minimum and things like yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Well, I think actually I want, want to return to something you talked about today mm-hmm. because that was something that that I really got a little bit excited about. You talked about um, um, that we should. In, we should look at, for example, um, I've been working with different cloud providers. I've been working with Google Cloud, I've been working with AWS, and they have all their different ways of working, and you mm-hmm. have to spend a lot of time if you're moving from one to the other, and then if you have a system using both, I mean, that's almost impossible. But you talked today about using it as sort of, a, you said, utility, right? I think that hmm. is a very exciting idea, but um, I mean, how, how far are we away from something like that?
2: Um that's a great question. Uh, I, I think what's happening is is that, and I just actually attended a, a talk right before uh, this meeting where, um, you know, the person was talking about the way boomers and, and Gen X, I guess I'm Gen X, um, you know, approach um, problems and software architecture engineering, whatever you want to call it, versus what he was calling kind of the Zoomers, the ones that are even still in school, mm-hmm. um, and and. The way they approach things or his opinion is kind of aligned with where I think things are going, which is um, either through regulatory concerns, financial pressures meaning you want to get a better price on running some some analytics over some data the people want to have choice across multiple clouds um, but the cloud providers you know they've invested a tremendous amount of money and time and they Want to make customers happy like everyone does, but they also are incentivized to make their offering sticky so it's hard to leave, Mm, (laughs) kind of like the Hotel California, right? You can check in, but you can't check out. Um, However, again, because of you know, either it's um, choice pressures, financial pressures, or regulatory, like you know, Finn Services in a lot of Europe now is being forced to be multi cloud by default, Um, they can't just be pinned to one. It's starting to have people look at certain services that could be very helpful to them but would pin them in to a certain cloud provider, and they're starting to either not select them or trying to move away from them. Mm. Um, I mean, you, know. you,
1: also, you also see um, these services that just operates on top of a cloud, so it makes everything easier.
2: Yeah, you're, you're seeing a lot of, uh, at least in my opinion, a lot of software startups are trying to take advantage of that. So see the patterns that have worked in the past, abstract those patterns out to be, you know, either multi-cloud or what I call edgeware. You know, mm-hmm. in, in the talk, um, you know, I, I mentioned a prediction I made about four or five years ago that edge would dwarf cloud by two orders of magnitude within 10 years. And we have four years left. And any exponential technology, 50 percent of the way through, you look like a failure. <laughs> you look like you've totally missed the the, the ball because uh, it starts out dead flat, right? And mm. it kind of goes like this. Um, but I really do believe that most people, even today, are interfacing, not in terms of maybe building software and working with cloud providers, but consuming technology. They're interfacing with whatever you want to define edge, um, not necessarily, um, you know, origin servers that are running in cloud and and
1: but that's more the consumers right we're talking about software developers here instead but you you think of of that also being abstracted away so that software developers also become consumers in the way that they're just using a service and you don't even know what's behind it
2: i, I do and and um, you know to kind of illustrate that point what what i'm trying to describe is um, and again i'm i'm I've been around for a while. Um, you know, I remember that you know, you would go into a bank, right, and you would meet with a bank professional or a teller, and they were driving the system, and it was you know, a Windows machine or an NEC box, and you know, X Y Z. Um, and I can't remember the last time I've even stepped into a bank, right? And when you transition from someone who works at the bank and could be trained on a specific set of software that they might go to training for, and it. Has its quirks, but it is what it is. To you know, millions upon you know hundreds of millions of consumers with an iPhone or an Android phone in their pocket, you see the shift, right? So even though the software back end software developers for the bank might be doing things that feel very similar today as they were doing maybe 15 years ago, the system as it's being consumed has radically changed, right? Um, you know, even the the notion of I, I call it the spinning wheel, right? And and then in the talk we talked about the human psychology of a, our brain switches at about 160 to 200 milliseconds, right? We we mm-hmm. flip and that's when we realize something is slow. You know, when our brain starts concentrating on something else. And so even the notion of, you know, doing a deposit on on your phone, you know, if that thing spins for over a couple hundred milliseconds, your brain says, "Wow, that that's slow." You know what I mean? And so there's this voracious appetite to in lack of a better word, not context switch mm-hmm. the end recipient's context in their brain, um, and I think that's driving a very different way of thinking about it. And and again, if let's say the ability to process that transaction, so scan you know scan the picture, validate it, all that other stuff. Let's say all of the back end stuff, you know, ran in let's say five milliseconds. It was perfectly designed. Linda designed it. She's one of the best software architects we've ever seen in the world. But if that software only runs in Zurich, and I'm stuck in Los Angeles, California, in the United States, my experience is that could have taken like 280 milliseconds, right? Depending on all network traffic, how to get over there, how to get back. And so you're starting to see this notion of we can design it and it can work very well, but we now need to replicate it and spread it out. And a lot of these systems can't operate in a vacuum. Right? They're not like uh, math you know where it's like two plus two it's they need a data set to actually interface with right to, to collect data and, and massage that data to return the response And that's during the talk I was trying to say they're kind of coupled at the hip um, and they need to be able to move and flow um, in kind of a, a relationship pattern across clouds and edge and whatever you want to define it as. So it's very fascinating to to see how. Software development is still evolving at such a rapid rate. Even things like Copilot, um, which you know is, is OpenAI's attempt to scour all of GitHub source code and essentially you can kind of say, "Oh, I want this type of data structure. I want a function that does this," and it's going to try to write it. And when it first came out, you know, a lot of people were skeptical. A lot mm-hmm. of people were laughing. Um, a little bit at it. Um, Even like the other day at AI Day for Tesla, right? They were laughing at the the AI robot. And I tweeted, look, be be, be careful because what you just saw is the worst it will ever be. And Mm. it's gonna continue to get better tomorrow and the next day. And so when you laugh, what you're really saying unconsciously is you're betting that the team behind it can't make progress that's on par with the general industry. But if you think they can, and they've proven that they can in the past, instead of laughing, you should lean in. Mm. And, and it's it's a tough concept to wrap your head around, but yeah, every technology we we see for the first time is the worst it literally will ever be. And it's a different way of thinking about it, but if you kind of go, wow, what do I think they'll pull off in a year from now? You know, what do I think it's gonna be in five years from now? Um, and of course, you know, with the, with the pandemic, at least in the States, uh, we call it COVID time. And so it'd be, oh yeah, that was last year. And it's like, no, that was three years ago, mm. right? Because everything kind of was getting waffled. So even even a year from now is very fast. So Linda, in the, the world of data science, what, what were the first tools or programming languages used? And going forward, what are you looking forward to? What do you think is gonna revolutionize that space for you? Uh, well,
1: if if we start with what what did I start with? I actually started with something simple as Pascal, <laughs> and then I moved to R. But mm-hmm. I quickly realized that R was way too slow, so I had to start programming for real. So I moved over to C plus plus. Oh wow! But um, but since then, of course, we have gotten Python, and I'm actually very happy with Python.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, yeah, I'm I'm. Uh, when when I first saw Python, I was not a fan at all. I thought it was. Uh, very, too simple. Yeah. And uh, you could, you can, you can make a big mess out of it. And uh, yeah, you still can. But, uh, but it's, it's really, really powerful also because you can reach a lot of people who otherwise would not be programming.
2: Yeah. Do you think something will replace it? I mean, because I know the basis underneath of it is like NumPy and pandas that are usually optimized over a very low level, fast C level or C. You know, libraries.
1: I don't know if anything will replace it soon because uh, um, I, I think the the power in it lies that uh, that you can use it in two different ways. You can use it both as a research tool, so where a lot of research still uses R mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. statistics for data science, but they have a lot of them have moved over to using Python in the same way in a notebook format. Right. But you can also use Python, exactly the same language, you can use to actually do a real right. real program something that you put into production so i think that's a big strength of a language that you can actually do both things and um, we well know that <laughs> researchers don't move that fast so if they yeah. hold on to python i think uh, the rest of the data science data engineering community will have to do that as well
2: yeah last question at least for me uh, tensorflow or pytorch
1: I like TensorFlow, yeah, well, using Keras.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Not TensorFlow raw.
2: Right, right.
1: What about you? Have you done any machine learning neural networks?
2: I have. Um, I was part of the first um, coming of the AI winner in the <laughs> mid to, to late 80s in university. Um, but yeah, I got my start uh, when I was 11 in basic but did Pascal, Fortran, C, Assembly. I think last check, I'm at 40 some languages. I try to learn a new one every year. Um, so last year was uh, Rust. And this year, um, actually the the um, creator of this language is giving a talk tomorrow, which I'm going to attend. Mm-hmm. And him and I are both uh, going to South uh, Africa in February for a conference, but it's called uh, Zig. And um, it's one that's really got my, my attention. So I'm interested to hear him talk and I've already started on a, a client for the systems that I work on in, in Zig. So, looking forward to that. All thank right. you, Linda, for the time. I appreciate it. Looking forward to your talk
0: tomorrow.
1: Thank you. And uh, thank you for your time. And it was uh, very
0: nice talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to Gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.